Young women have been growing up with an indoctrination of what womanhood is and what it should be. They've been taught everything that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Young women who want to be different from the world are rare, but they are real. On this Rare But Real podcast, Audrey Brogy will often be joined by her daughter, Grace Anna, and her daughters-in-law, Maureen, Kesset, and Marilyn, who desire to be discerning in a day when everything seems to go against God's design. Join them in the journey of becoming rare but real. It takes courage and conviction. And now, Audrey Brogy. Let's open in prayer. Father, I thank you for all the women who are already in this auditorium and those who I see out in the hallways who who will be coming in. And I thank you for the women who are live streaming, who've already told me they were going to be watching and they're praying. And I thank you for all the women who will be listening or watching later. Father, we give you this morning, we give you all that takes place here. Father, I'm so thankful for the opportunity that we have as women in this church to come together, to encourage one another, to hear your word taught, to, um, to use us in the lives of each other, especially in this day and age where we need to encourage all each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Father, we look so forward to your return. We look so forward to um, all that you want to do in, in and through us while we are still here upon this earth. So Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word together with these women, and I pray again that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree, firmly planted by strings of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. And there is a mirror passage to Psalm 1 that's found in Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony waste in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in, the, in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. Similar passages, and they both sound like the Sermon on the Mount, which we will come to toward the end of today's message. You know, in all these passages, one word stands out, and that is the word blessed. It's such an important word. In Psalm 1, this blessed, this word blessed is plural. It means many blessings, but not only that, it speaks of the greatness of the blessings. Many blessings and the depth of blessings and the vastness of blessings. And it also speaks of our salvation. When you know the Lord, you are truly blessed. And blessed is such a great Bible word. Um, you know, some of the synonyms maybe for blessed is it's really the word happy, not in the frivolous sense using the word happy, but one that communicates a deep joy, a deep happiness, down, way down deep in your soul. It can't be taken away from you. Gladness that cannot be described. It surpasses all understanding. And that's what salvation does in our lives when we truly understand the grace of God and that he has saved us and there's nothing we could do but it's out of his mercy and his kindness. That brings a deep joy no matter what the circumstances of life. And of course, thinking about this makes me think of a children's song. Maybe some of y'all know this song. 
I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart, down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. Where? Down in my heart. And then some of the verses are, I've got the peace that passes understanding. And then I've got the love of Jesus down in my heart. And then the verse that says, for there is therefore now no condemnation. You know, that was the one that's really hard to sing when you're a child. But it's such good words. You know, no condemnation. There is no condemnation down in my heart when we're blessed. I mean, how great is that? And that's what salvation does. It brings no condemnation. And of course, there was one phrase that I didn't find in the original or that, you know, when I looked up the song, I looked it up to see all the verses. And the one um, phrase that I didn't find when I looked it up was, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Do y'all know that verse? Do y'all know that? <laughs> we always sang it that way with our kids when they were growing up. And, it's, you know, and if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Ouch, sit on attack. Ouch. Anyway, I don't know the origin of that verse, but my kids loved it. And of course, we know that the devil doesn't like the deep joy we have in Christ. He doesn't like the fact that we're saved. He doesn't like that there is now no condemnation because he always wants to condemn us and he wants to condemn believers. He wants to steal our joy. And Jesus tells us that no one can steal our joy. But he wants us to always focus on, on what we don't have. He always wants us to focus on our past sins and bring them up and put them ever before us. He doesn't want us to focus on the blessings of our salvation, but he wants us to feel condemned even when we are not condemned. He hates us, yet he pretends that he loves us, but he doesn't. And we're so fooled. And of course, thinking about this song and thinking about it in this, in this last week, I'm reminded of a prayer that my Jordan prayed when he was about three years old. And I just remember him saying, dear Jesus, please make the devil sit on attack right now. <laughs> but you know, as we move through this psalm today, we will see in living color that godliness brings this kind of joy. Our salvation brings this kind of joy, but we all know some of the most miserable Christians, people who are really saved, are those who do not live out the salvation that they've been given. They're not godly. And so they don't have this kind of deep happiness way down deep in their hearts. Now, they don't experience it, but God wants us to experience it. You know, in John 16, that Jesus said this, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Another version says, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Isn't that so good to remember in the day and age in which we live? And when we're seeing that everything that we hold dear crumble around us, he says, I have overcome the world. And so we can be filled with joy even when the heat comes. In the heat of life, our leaves will be green. We won't be anxious even in the drought, and we will not stop bearing fruit. That's what the scripture says. Even when, when it might seem so to us, even when everything seems barren to us, that's what we just read in Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17. That's what those passages teach us. We enter into the joy of the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is our strength. How blessed we are when we hope in when we walk in and when we trust the Lord, the psalmist wants to teach us that the godly is so different from the ungodly. And this psalm shows us two very different people. It's like a great contrast of the blessed and the wicked. It's two, two people living two very different lives, heading towards two very different destinations. It shows us two paths, just like we learned in Proverbs 7, I mean, excuse me, in Proverbs 9, back in February, two paths. Now, I love this psalm. God lets us know that he only sees two kinds of people, the blessed and the cursed, the righteous and the wicked. And though this psalm is the first in the book of Psalms, I have learned as I've been studying it that it's not the first to be written. I learned this summer that Psalm 90 was the first to be written, 400 years before Psalm 1. I also learned this summer that the last psalm to be written was Psalm 126. So there's a lot of time between these psalms that are written. But I love that this one is placed at the beginning of the Psalter. 
You know, I still remember when Psalm 1 made its first huge impact in my life. Carl and I were newly married, and we were in our first church together, and the pastor was not preaching that day. It was a lay person who was preaching. But I still remember him saying, open your Bibles to Psalm 1. And then he taught it verse by verse, and I can't tell you how large it loomed in my life. God impressed upon me that Sunday morning that I didn't want to be a young woman who listened to the counsel of the wicked, that I didn't want to be a young woman who stood in the path of sinners, and I certainly didn't want to sit in the seat of scoffers. I learned the progression that day. I wanted to be a young woman who would grow into an old woman whose delight was always meditating on the law of the Lord. I wanted to be like this tree that God describes, firmly planted by streams of water. Because you, when you're young, you don't know what life it's going to have before you. You don't know what you're going to be walking into. But I wanted to be firmly planted. I wanted and asked the Lord that I would yield fruit in every season of my life, that he would do it through me. I didn't want my leaf to wither. <laughs> I wanted to prosper, prosper in the Lord, have success in the Lord, not what the world deems as pros prosperity and success, but what God says is prosperous and successful. And God reminded me on that Sunday morning that there are two paths and only two paths, two ways and only two ways, two destinations and only two destinations. And even today, as I'm looking out at all the women in this room and those who will be watching later, you're either blessed or you're cursed. There's no third way. You're either righteous or you're unrighteous. You are either blessed or you are wicked. You are either saved or you are lost. You are either headed for heaven or you are headed for hell. And so the question is, which one are you? And which one do you want to be? Now we're going to look at the blessed destination first. The righteous person, the righteous woman, the one who puts her hope in God. What characterizes her? What is she like? What is her hope? What does she avoid? What does she run toward? So that's the first thing, as you, if you want to take notes on your outline, is the blessed woman. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now let me just say right up front, it says how blessed is the man. This is the word for man and, men and women, but we're not woke and we're not offended by that, right? We understand. So, so this word man speaks of mankind, man or woman. So I will be saying, I will be talking about women today. You know, we sometimes hear Christians say this phrase, well, I want to be known by what I'm for, not what I'm against. But here's the thing, a true believer, one who knows Christ is against ungodliness. And we need to be known by what we are against. And if you need a biblical reminder of that, Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who redeemed us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, this is just one passage. But it couldn't be any more clearer than this passage, the message of the gospel and its implication for believers. I mean, why did Jesus come? You just can answer these questions right from this verse. Why did Jesus come? To bring salvation. What does salvation do? It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. That's the negative part of the verse. And to live sensible Sensibly, righteously, and godly, that's the positive parts. What, kind, uh, what does this kind of living cause within the believer? 
We look for his appearing. We can't wait for him to come for us. And why do we look for and long for his appearing? Because he redeemed us from every lawless deed. And the lawless deeds that we've committed and the lawless deeds we see in this world, that hurts our hearts. And God, we understand that God redeemed us from that. And what does he do then? He purifies us for himself. We are a people for his possession, for his own possession, the scripture says. And what is the result of all of this in our lives? We become zealous for good deeds. I mean, zealous, isn't that a great word? That's, we're, we're passionate about good deeds. We're dedicated to living out this salvation. We're passionate about it. We're devoted to it. And of course, my favorite synonym is fiery. Doesn't this make you want to ask yourself, what is it that I'm fiery about? What am I dedicated to? What am I passionate over? If people could give one word to describe what you are passionate over, what would they say? I mean, what gets you riled up? And I'm not talking about in a negative way. I'm talking about in a positive way, something that's godly. What gets you riled up? You know, one of the things right now that gets me riled up in our world today is this whole gender propaganda that's being pushed on our children. I mean, y'all, that riles me up. Mutilating our children And the most despicable thing is this. I mean, it's like parents are just crazy today. But that's the mark of an ungodly person. That's the mark of ungodly people. They don't see things the way God sees them. And it's so despicable even in this day of anyone. Think about this in terms of the celebrity people. I'm not talking about Christian celebrities. I'm just talking about celebrities. If there are some brave, courageous people who have any type of fame out there, who say something against the narrative of our world, they are villains, they are canceled, they are labeled, they are called all kinds of names. What gets you riled up? See, the reason things like that should hurt us and get us riled up is because if we're godly, if we understand the scripture, then we know that this is a distortion. This is horrible what's going on in our world. So this woman, this godly woman is known by what she doesn't do. She's blessed by what she chooses not to do. And and of course, they're right there in the passage. She doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. She doesn't stand in the path of sinners. And she doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, I want to go back to something I stated at the beginning of this message by way of reminder. Remember, there are two different kinds of people in our world. I want to remind you again, righteous and wicked, saved and lost, godly and ungodly, just and unjust. If a woman is not saved, she's not righteous. She's not godly. In fact, God tells us in his word that she is wicked. She's hostile to the things of God. Now, we don't like to hear this. I don't like to hear this because I know a lot of very nice people, a lot of very nice women who are not saved. However, God says they are wicked. They're in that category. If you're saved, you're in the righteous category. If you're not saved, you're in the wicked category. But since they are made in God's image, they bear the marks of his kindness in their personhood. That's poured out in their lives because there's common grace that's given to all. And it's not that they are as bad as they can be and participate in all the deeds of darkness. But as scripture teaches, and as you've heard Pastor Carl say many times, they're as bad off as they can be. Just like we were before God in his kindness saved us. You know, that, the, the verse I just read in Titus, the verses that follow the ones I pointed out earlier say this. For we also once were foolish ourselves. And we, not, we need to never forget this. And here's the list of, of what describes us. Disobedient deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. I mean, it's such a descriptive list, and it describes the person before they come to know the Lord. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, 
malice, envy, hateful, hating people, wicked. Two kinds of people, remember? So from our verse, a saved woman does not listen to the counsel of the wicked. Now, who are the wicked? Well, again, we've already said they're the unsaved people. We've already defined them as ungodly, and ungodly people cannot give good and wise counsel, even if they're nice. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, but a natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So think about who you listen to as you go about your day. What do you take in? Do you take in all the silly talk shows? I mean, do you? Do you take in all the silly morning shows? Do you? Do you listen to all your silly friends? And silly advice that they give, do you? I mean, there's a progression here. Walk, stand, sit. You know, when I was growing up, my mother read to me. I grew up with this poem book. And uh, this this is one of the poems she read. And it's called The Spider and the Fly. Will you walk into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Tis the prettiest little parlor that you ever did spy. The way into my parlor is up a winding stair, and I have many pretty things to show you when you are there. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, to ask me is in vain, for who goes up your winding stair can ne'er come down again. I'm sure you must be weary, dear, with soaring up so high. Will you rest upon my little bed, said the spider to the fly. There are pretty Curtains drawn around, the sheets are fine and thin. And if you like to rest a while, I'll snugly tuck you in. Oh, no, no, said the little fly, for I've often heard it said, they never, ever wake again who sleep upon your bed, said the cunning spider to the fly. Dear friend, what shall I do to prove the warm affection I've always had for you? I have within my pantry and store all that's nice. I'm sure you're very welcome. Will you please to take a slice? Oh, no, 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 said the little fly. Kind sir, that cannot be. I've heard what's in your pantry and I do not wish to see. See the talking to the spider. Sweet creature, said the spider, you're witty and you're wise. How handsome are your gauzy wings, how brilliant are your eyes. I have a little looking glass upon my parlor shelf. If you'll step in one moment, dear, you shall behold yourself. I thank you, gentle sir, she said, for what you're pleased to say. And bidding you good morning now, I'll I'll call another day. The spider turned him round about and went into his den, for well he knew the silly fly would soon be back again. So he wove a subtle web in a little corner sly and set his table ready to dine upon the fly. Then he came out to his door again and merrily did sing, come hither, hither, pretty fly, with a pearl and silver wing. Your robes are green and purple. There's a crest upon your head. Your eyes are like the diamond bright, but mine are dull as lead. Alas, alas, how very soon this silly little fly, hearing his wily flattering words, came slowly flitting by. With buzzing wings, she hung aloft, then near and nearer drew, thinking only of her brilliant eyes and green and purple hue, thinking only of her crested head. Poor foolish thing, at last up jumped the cunning spider and fiercely held her fast. He dragged her up his winding stair into his dismal den within his little parlor, but she ne'er came out again. And now, dear little children, I remember my mom reading to this and like feeling all creepy. And now, dear little children, who may this story read to idle, silly, flattering words, I pray you ne'er give heed unto an evil counselor, close heart and ear and eye, and take a lesson from this tale of the spider and the fly. But y'all, we don't even read this kind of stuff to our kids anymore, do we? I'm just saying just what the lesson is here. And we see this all in Scripture. And, you know, recently I was up in Raleigh. I was helping my daughter. They they moved into a house, and I was helping her unpack. And we went to this library, and basically Charles and I sat in one section because he got so interested in carnivorous plants. And so I learned a whole bunch about the Venus flytrap and about pitcher plants and butterworts and all kinds of stuff. But as I was reading it, about this pitcher plant, I want to show you something. Look how beautiful it is. I mean, they're beautiful, and they're in swampy areas. 
But listen, a sweet nectar is produced around the lip of the pitcher opening. Attracted by the nectar and the bright colors of the pitcher, an insect flies or crawls onto the convenient lip. It begins to sip the nectar and soon crawls further into the opening, searching for more. And this is the way I read it to Charles. When the insect moves into the tube of the pitcher plant, it is in trouble. The inside walls of the tube are slick and slippery as ice. The insect slips further down. There it finds its footing along hairs that line the lower part of the tube as seen in the picture on the left. But the hairs all face downward toward the pool of water below. Once the insect has crawled past them, it is impossible for it to get back up. The insect struggles but finally becomes exhausted and falls into the water below. And there it drowns. You can be sure I talked to Charles about Psalm 1. Counsel of the wicked. See, it doesn't sound wicked. Sweet nectar. Flattery. You know, telling us wonderful things about ourselves. And so often it sounds good, like good advice. It's enticing. We want to do it. It makes sense but it leads down a dangerous path. And sometimes it's hard to tell if you are not grounded in the word of God, if you don't know God's word and you are disobedient to the word of God, it's very hard for you to tell. But if you are grounded, even if you're a brand new Christian and you're obeying everything that you know, God the Holy Spirit sounds his alarm and you will begin to know And you will know sometimes in a moment, you'll have something ringing. That doesn't sound right. That's not true. I don't believe that. You might not even know sometimes why. But the blessed woman does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now think about yourself for a second. Are there influences in your life right now that need to be removed? I mean, even media. And that's the way we're so enticed more than anything today is media. Because it's not just like, you know, when I was teaching in the beginning so many, it was just like the television and the movies. But now it's everywhere, everything you pick up. You know, and even like as I'm on Twitter and I follow a lot of godly pastors on Twitter. And, you know, sometimes I'm just like, why did you tweet that? Now I have no respect for you. And I don't mean a pastor here, but there was a godly man I was following. And then, and then he's like tweeting all about the Game of Thrones. And I'm just like, I haven't watched it. I don't know. I just know it's awful. I've read about it. What is wrong with us? What is wrong with women who talk all about, I want to obey God, I want to know him, I want to walk with him, I want to live a godly life. And then they're watching garbage or they're reading garbage. And they think it doesn't matter. Y'all, it matters because that's the progression. It's like she doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, but neither does she stand in the path of sinners. That's step two of the progression. She's walking along in this life, she's, but she starts heeding the counsel. And sometimes she's like gets so caught up in the flattery and the, how it makes sense that she doesn't know the difference. And you can't help, let me say this, you cannot help being, but be exposed to the counsel of the wicked in this life because we live in this world. But you can help walking in it, heeding in it, pausing over it, and then standing and then finally sitting in it if you're drinking it in. And bef- that's what happens. Before long, you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. You're mocking the things of God. Maybe even, in, and I'm talking about a believer here that can slip into this maybe even embarrassed by the things of God because you're embarrassed to say that the Bible really says something that it says. Because maybe you want to hold on to the Lord, but you care more about being accepted by people. Listen, it's happening all over Christendom, wanting to be accepted and liked, softening what God says plain and simple, being afraid to take a stand on moral issues, being nuanced, removing things from from books that you wrote a long time ago that you thought that, that were based on the Word of God, but now the culture has shifted, so you shift it with it. I mean, I could name a bunch of names here. People wanting to be liked by the world. Who are they want to be liked by? The ungodly? 
people who stand opposed to the Lord. And then some of these so-called brothers, these so-called Christians end up making fun of and looking down on salt of the earth Christians, talking about them in dismissive terms. You know, like they, they don't know that much. You know, we're the elite Christians. We're above the fray. Those who believe the Bible in its clarity, in right and wrong, in godly and ungodly, the people, the Christians, who know there are only two ways, the broad and the narrow, the way of wisdom and the way of folly, death and life, kingdom of darkness and kingdom of light, heaven and hell. Again, there's no third way. There's no middle ground. There's no compromise. There's no other way of salvation that's been given to man but Jesus Christ no other way to live. And once you start walking in the counsel of the wicked and you keep on without repentance, you end up standing in the path of sinners. I mean, think about what you read, what you watch, who you listen to, what you wear even. Who are you taking your cues from in terms of what you wear? The world and what they say women ought to be wearing? You know... I don't like to hear it any more than you do, but we have to be separated from this world, separated from this world. But please understand what I'm saying, because this is what the scripture teaches. We are in the world. God has placed us here, and he's placed us here for a reason. We love the people of the world, but we are supposed to be set apart and different because we are to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. The way we live helps point them to the Lord. Why do we live differently? 1 John 2.15 says this, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what God is telling us is that we are not to love this world's evil system. And if as a saved person you don't see this evil world system, it's proof that you most likely are not saved. So many women who claim to be saved are just like Lot's wife. Remember the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah? The angels getting Lot and his family out, having to pull them out. Destruction is coming, but Lot's wife on the way out looks back. It's such a picture of a woman in love with the world system, in love with the evil world system, not loving God, not being separate, still longing for Sodom, not believing. Lot's wife didn't love wholesome and holy things. Do you love those things? Wholesome and holy and things that are honoring to the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? I mean, it's good for us to be reminded of this because we live in times where everyone's opinions are just as valuable as everyone else's, where so-called believers want to be accepted and liked, as I've been trying to make this point but they want to be accepted and liked by unbelievers, so much so that we are ashamed of the truth and basically we've become cowards. We go along to get along. We're silent when we should speak up. And you know, I'm very thankful and grateful for a whole host of young women that I see who are coming up behind my generation who are following hard after the Lord, who are not ashamed who are speaking the truth. And y'all, I pray for them. I pray for these young women that they will hold fast the faithful word so that when they get to be my age, they're still saying the same things, that they're not going to be swept away, suddenly deciding maybe in their 40s or 50s, you know what? I want to be like the world. I want people to like me. I just pray that they'll stand the test of time. But see, we water down sin. We water down the gospel message. Y'all, if nothing is sin, if there's nothing that's sinful, then why on earth do we need a Savior? Proverbs 13, 20 says this, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I hope you're making the connection in your mind. 
you know, walks with the wise, grows wise, that, that gives, uh, tells us what are we listening to? Who are we learning from? What are we paying attention to? Is it wise? Is it godly people? Or are we the companion of fools? Now, we sometimes use that with our children. We talk to them, you know, and I certainly did as my children were growing up. I want you to walk with the wise. I, I don't want you to be a companion of fools and every, you know. But I think by that, we need that as much for us as adults. You know, you might think, well, they're not my companions. Well, yes, they are if you're taking it in every single day. If what you run to is the world's advice rather than running to the Scripture or running to wise people. 1 Corinthians 15, again, verse 33, do not be deceived because that's what happens to us. We get deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Galatians 6, verses 7 to 9, do not be deceived. There it is again, the command, do not be deceived. That lets us know that we can be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary. Y'all, sometimes this just means turning off some movie that you thought was going to be great, that you thought was going to be wholesome, that maybe a bunch of your Christian friends recommended, and you turn it on, it's like, hmm, and you just turn it off. It says, and well, you know, God's not mocked. Whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. But we don't think that's going to happen. We think it's not that bad. We think it's okay. And there's a difference, too, between acquaintances and companions. You know, acquaintances are things you know about, people you know. You're friendly with them. But companions, that's, that gives a sense of intimacy, who you're hanging around with, and not just in the people realm, but in the reading realm, in the watching realm, and what you're feeding your mind on. True believers love God. They love His Word. They love holiness. They love to be rebuked when they've sinned and gotten out of line. They don't love it, but they love it. You know what I mean? I mean, who likes to be rebuked? But but if it's for our good, if it's going to make me more like the Lord, I love it, but I don't love it. True believers want to be separated from ungodliness. Does your soul hurt when you watch or listen or read ungodly things? Maybe when you've let your defenses down and you've just done it anyway or watched it anyway or read it anyway or been entertained by it anyway, and then later it's like, I just hate that I did that. That is the mark of a believer, a, a, a believer who wants to live in holiness because that's always going to happen. All of us are going to have times when we listen to the counsel of the wicked, when we stand in the path of sinners, and when we sit in the seat of scoffers. Sometimes it might show up in just making fun of another believer who has higher standards than you do. Mocking them. But not only is the blessed woman characterized by what she doesn't do, she's also characterized by what she does do. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. She delights in the law of the Lord. It's like Joshua 1.8. Remember that when, when God tells Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. I mean, Joshua was, was to delight in the law of God, and God makes promises about that. Delight. What are you delighted in? You know, she's excited by God's Word. She takes pleasure in it. She can't wait to read it or hear it read to her or hear it taught. She finds happiness and joy in the Word of God. Wonder what God's going to teach me today. You know, I used to make little signs when Carl and I were first married and and I used to like just tape them up on the wall in our little apartment. And one of them, I, I drew this little like, I don't know why this is coming to my mind. <laughs> but I drew this, these little stick people. And it was just a white piece of paper with these guy and a girl stick people. And then I wrote, wonder what God's going to teach us today. Kind of silly. 
But seriously, it was where my heart was at the time. What is God going to teach me today? So much so, I mean, this woman, so much so that she's meditating in it throughout the day. Her thoughts run to it. When she's happy, when she's sad, when she's discouraged, when she needs counsel and advice. I mean, again, God the Holy Spirit does his job and he brings the scripture to mind that you need in those times in your life. When drought comes, I mean, this kind of woman is not looking to the next self-help guru. She's looking to Jesus, as Hebrews 12, 2 says. She's laying aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles her because she realizes how easily entangled she can become. She's running with endurance. She knows it's hard. So she has endurance, the race that is set before her. She's fixing her eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what she's doing. This is her perspective. And she, like Paul, admonished us in Romans 12 too, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I mean, how is the godly woman's mind going to be renewed? First of all, when she saved the ungodly woman and God saves her, then her mind is suddenly renewed. She sees everything differently. It's like the blinders have fallen off. But then as she grows, as she's sanctified, her mind's going to be renewed. She's not going to be conformed to this world because she is obeying God and close to his word and everything that he shows her. That's how she won't be conformed to this world. By the things she doesn't do, as we've just learned in the first verse in, in Psalm 1, but what she does do. And then what are the results? She will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its seasons. Leaf does not wither, and whatever she does, she prospers. She understands that there are absolutes of Scripture. I mean, she's firmly planted. She is steadfast. You know how 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, be steadfast, immovable, be firm, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work is not in vain in the Lord I mean, God wants us to be steadfast and immovable. He wants us to know there are absolutes. Everything is not nuanced. You know, we're like, well, maybe God meant this. Or, well, maybe this. No, there's absolutes. There's an anchor. He's our anchor. We're not talking about doubtful things. Y'all can, y'all should go to the discovery class and do the whole lesson that deals with the principles from God's words. But we're talking about the absolutes of Scripture. And you know what? Our world today does not like absolutes. They don't like to say, here I stand and I'm not going to be moved. You know, a person, a Christian is labeled as a legalist or an extremist if she is steadfast. If she says, no, I'm not going to be moved. If she holds absolutes, because now today to be steadfast, immovable, is hated even by so-called sisters and brothers. You know, Psalm 16, 8 says this, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So no matter what the world throws at you, all of the stuff it's throwing at you, well, maybe. There's no well maybes about the absolutes in Scripture. Now, let's think about this in terms of our salvation, this firmly planted thing. She didn't do it. God saved her. He planted her, and he firmly planted her in Christ. It's like Colossians 2. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted. There it is again. And now being built up in him and established in your faith. That's like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I mean, again, overflowing, that makes you think of water. Firmly rooted and planted. It's like Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Remember how God breathed life into Adam when he was in this uninhabited place? And then God planted, placed him in the garden 
You know, God planted the garden, then he places Adam in the garden. And then, you know, if you read Genesis 2, God describes the garden as a place with waters flowing. Water flowing in the garden. Four rivers, he tells us. So the blessed woman is planted by streams of water, moved from where she was, unsaved, and moved to where God wants her saved. He saved her. She was in her sin, dead in her sin, no life, no growth, no fruit. And then God moved in her life. He breathed life into her soul, and he saved her. And it's interesting how God describes in this metaphor how when he plants us, he also gives us everything that we need because we're firmly planted by streams of water that never runs dry. And streams is in the plural. That means it's abundant, it's gushing, it's flowing, it's alive. And so we're continually fed if we want to be. We're firmly planted by the grace of God and he didn't leave us on our own. Now you figure it out. I saved you, now you figure out the rest of it. See, don't miss the picture here. When everyone around you is in the wilderness, they're in this dry and thirsty place in a drought, you have a constant source of living water if you know God. So different from, remember in Jeremiah 17, where the scripture says it's like a bush in the desert, in the stony wasteland. But we have a reservoir, and it's never, ever, ever, ever empty. Even in the harrowing, horrible, lonely, hard times of our lives. Maybe we've lost someone in death. And we just don't think we can ever be happy again. Maybe our finances are stripped away. Maybe some horrible health diagnosis. Maybe a prodigal child. I don't know. You can just fill in the blank with the horrible, harrowing circumstances that you either have faced or people that have faced them. But here's the thing. If God has planted us, if he saved us, we have streams of water in abundance, more than we can ever take in in our whole lives. So much that no matter what we have faced, what we're facing now, what we will face, we have God's streams of water nourishing us. We're firmly planted, y'all. We're stable. We may not feel stable sometimes. We may not feel a lot of things, but we are stable because he is stable. She will be like a tree Firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. So whatever your season, God yields his fruit as you need it. We are like evergreen trees. We don't lose our leaves. Our leaves don't wither. We're like evergreen trees, always yielding fruit, never dead, never withering. And I want to tell you something, y'all. Women, you know, we worry so much about the older season of our lives. It's like women want to have, I mean, women who are at 30 worry about getting old. But they will get old unless they go home to be with, unless they die. But it's like women want to hang on to their youth and they think nothing is better than being young and they worry about the wrinkles and the gray hair and all that stuff. And while we should take care of this body and be good stewards of this body and, you know, we're supposed to do all that, but we should not be worrying about getting old. Because here's the thing, when we understand that we are firmly planted by God, not just in our salvation, but he's created the boundaries of our inhabitation as Acts 17 teaches. He chose the year of our birth. He chose the years we would be young and the years when we would be old. He chose all of that. And when we're firmly planted in him, we yield fruit in every season of our lives. That's what God's word teaches. And when we are in one season, we shouldn't long for another season. We live fully for the Lord in that season. And as we do, we bear fruit in that season of our lives. See, and when we understand God's perspective on our lives, it takes away all the craziness of the fear of aging. We just understand it from, on God's timetable. We're, you know, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. 
I mean, read that from Ecclesiastes. And God knows when the time to bring us into this world. He knows the time to take us out of this world. And we rest in the fact that he's planted us in the seasons that we are in. We understand that. And of course, no one in their right mind will deny that it's hard for people to grow old because that's what sin did. When sin entered the world, it caused death and aging and decay and sadness and all of those things. You know, it's, you know, and all of those things should be a reminder to us that we're not made for this world. We are made for eternity. I mean, God has set, as Ecclesiastes tells us, eternity in our hearts. And since we're going to live forever, that's why there's, we're gonna, everyone's going to live forever. The wicked are going to live forever and the godly are going to live forever. It's just a matter of where we're going to live forever. And so while we are in this world, God wants to use us for his glory. And he wants us to be like that tree, firmly planted by streams of water so that we will yield fruit in our season, so our leaves will not wither, and in whatever we do, we prosper. We're to be separated from the foolish woman. Now let's talk about the last part of verse 3. And whatever she does, she prospers. Her soul prospers. Her spirit trusts in the Lord. Her heart is filled with joy, and she smiles at the future like Proverbs 31 tells us. She's sensing her gain is good because she's walking with the Lord all these years. She doesn't dry up as she gets older. No, she gets richer and fuller and has so much more to offer to those who are drying up. She stands out in days of drought. This prosperity here is not talking about material wealth. It's talking about the richness of knowing God, contentment in knowing who God is, who he is and what he's doing in her life. She's different from the world. Is this you? How much do you delight in God's word? How deeply rooted are you? What is it that you meditate upon throughout the day and the night watches? Now let's talk about the wicked woman. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, again, in our day, this is exactly the kind of passage our nuanced, don't want to hurt anybody's feelings culture would like to take out of the Bible or try to explain it away or pretend it's not there or just end at verse 3. But yet God is so very plain. Y'all, the wicked woman is lost. That's the A on your outline. She's lost. She's headed for hell. She's in desperate She's in a desperate and despairing place. She might not realize it, but she is. Her thoughts are bad. Her actions are bad. She's hostile to God. Not as bad as they can be necessarily. I mean, remember again, there's two kinds of women in this room. There's two kinds of women listening, saved and lost, righteous and wicked. And we might think we can recognize a wicked woman by the way she looks, how she dresses and all those things. Those things might give clues. We might think we can recognize The righteous woman, you know, she might be well-dressed. I mean, the wicked woman could be a well-dressed, beautiful woman, modest and lovely, perfect, practically perfect in every way, (laughs) successful, beautiful home. She may look absolutely lovely and act absolutely lovely, but Scripture teaches that she's not lovely, not according to God's standards. She's not happy, not according to God's standards. She has no joy, not according to God's standards. The scripture says, not so. The wicked are not so. After just describing the blessed woman, scripture states emphatically, the wicked are not so. They're not like this. In fact, they're just the opposite of this. They're not, are they fruitful? No, not so. Are they prosperous or do they sell the property? Not so. No, no. It's not that wicked. Are they firmly planted by streams of water? Not so. No, they're not this way. They do walk in the counsel of the wicked. They stand in the path of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. And we know these kinds of women. They look good, but they're not so. God further describes them like chaff, which the wind drives away. You know, at, har- at harvest time, a farmer would gather his crop and take it to the threshing floor, and he would throw stuff in the air, and the good part would settle back down because it's heavier, but the chaff, the useless part, just blows in the wind because it has no value. 
It's worth nothing. And this is the metaphor God's using here for the wicked. They're like chaff, which the wind drives away empty. No value, no substance. Yet how many of us idolize the wicked women in our day? Especially celebrity people. We listen to them, we model after them, we applaud them, we get giddy if we have a chance to meet them. So many of them who just make a mockery of God's holy standards. God's holy standards, which we claim to love, which we claim to meditate upon day and night, but yet we're giddy about them. They won't stand in the judgment. Please understand, they will appear at the judgment, but they will not stand. That's what Revelation 20 teaches. There's a final judgment for everyone. The wicked will not stand in righteousness. They are not covered by the blood of Christ. They're not pardoned. So not only, not only is she lost, but because she is lost, she's damned. She's doomed, if you want to use that word. She doesn't stand in the grace of God. There will be a separation of the blessed and the wicked. I mean, we don't like to think about this. We all know people who are very nice, again, but they're not saved. The reason they're nice, again, is because they're made in the image of God, and there's a common grace, and we love them. There's so, there's so many lost people I just love, and I want them to be saved so badly. And this understanding this should make us be bold to share the gospel with people that we love. Because this is their destiny. They're doomed. But right now on this earth, we're all together. The saved and the lost, we're together. The blessed woman, the wicked woman, we're all together. We're in the same churches. We're sometimes in the same families. We go to the same grocery stores. We go to football games together. We're in the same college classes or in the same office. We fly on the same airplanes. But on the day of judgment, separation is coming. And it could be from those we love deeply. And that, again, that's why there's an urgency to share the gospel. And y'all, this is exactly why the evil one wants true believers to lure them into a sleep. It's not that bad. Come into my parlor. It's okay. It'll all work out in the end. Why do you think he's energized all these books about hell? There's no hell. Because love wins. There's no this. I mean, you know, people have just redefined love. Did God really say? He can't mean that. But why does God say the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous? Verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Think about that. God knows the way of the righteous. He knows you. He knows who belongs to him. He's intimately acquainted with all our ways. He knows us by name. He knows us, as Psalm 139 teaches, that he leads us no matter what and no matter where. The Bible says in Hebrews, he will never leave us nor forsake us. The Bible tells us, God tells us in his word that he's with us even till the end of the age. But the way of the wicked will perish. I mean, y'all, we read that at, for those of you who are doing to the word Bible reading challenge this morning in John chapter 5. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. It's a reminder to us to know what's happening. But the way of the wicked will perish. This is eternal punishment. That's what he's talking about here. Hell, utter darkness, utter despair, separated from God. He uses the word perish, but there's never an end to perishing. There's no hope, not ever. Torment forever, because they'll never be burned up. They'll never die from this. And God tells us this plainly all over his word. It's hard to hear, but we need to hear it. We need to see people as God sees them, lost or saved, righteous or wicked. You know, I love how the Sermon on the Mount begins. Verse 5, when Jesus saw, if you look at this later, circle the word saw. He saw the crowds. And in that crowd, there's lost and saved. There's heaven and hell. There's righteous and unrighteous. He saw the crowds, and he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed.
Yes, there's the word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. Remember, he's talking to his disciples. The crowds are there hearing all of this. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. How more evangelistic can we be? And then near the end of this sermon, in Matthew 7, Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. How about you? Jesus tells us that the narrow gate is narrow. That means the majority of people are not running to it. But God is still saving people. And we need to be the kind of women, if we know him, that we're firmly planted by his streams of water, that we're yielding fruit in our seasons, that our leaves are not wither, so that we will prosper as God works in and through us, so that we can be a part of this multitude of people, all the believers who have gone before us, the ones yet to come, of leading people to Christ, letting God use us to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. Because y'all, there's two kinds of women. They're either lost or they're saved. And if you live for the Lord in this day and age in which we live, it's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. And you have to decide, are you going to be a coward? Are you just going to shrivel up because you are not being nourished by those streams of water? You just decide, you just like what the world offers way better. I'd rather watch TV and some wicked television show than meditate on what God says is good and holy and right. You know, if you walk with the Lord, you won't be liked by the world, but you will be loved by true believers. And not only that, Jesus said, he has my commands and obeys them. I will love him and I will show myself to him. That's what he says. You'll be loved by God. And that's really what matters. And then those who find Christ through you, that God uses you in the process, they will love you. You will be loved by God's people, at least the ones who matter. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for all of the exhortations that you have given to me just working through it this summer in ways that you've shown me in my own life, times when I've been listening to the counsel of the wicked, when I have not been delighting in your law. Father, I'm so thankful for the grace of God. I'm so thankful that you saw me, you saw me running fast away from you and you opened my dead heart 
and gave me the faith to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. Father, I thank you for the cross. And Father, if there's some woman who's listening today and they're just not sure they know the Lord, Father, I pray that you would make that clear to them that there's nothing they can do to earn their way to heaven. Living righteously does not earn salvation. Obeying you does not earn our way to heaven. It's simply by your death on the cross, taking our place, taking our sin upon your body and going to the cross in our place and dying instead of us. And then our trusting in your death, burial, and resurrection to save us. And Father, when we've truly come to understand your grace, then we want to live for you. You give us the want to, to obey you. Father, I thank you for this time we've had today. I pray you bless the groups as they meet together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this episode of Rare But Real, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. And share this podcast with friends. Follow Audrey on Instagram and Facebook at Mothering From The Heart. And listen to all her messages on the Search the Scriptures app.